There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's of great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. The Women's Climate Justice Collective is a national collective led by women based in Australia. We aim to mainstream feminist climate justice and support women in the climate and women's rights movements. At our Once Upon a Planet virtual storytelling event, guests joined us at the intersection of gender and the environment to hear first-person accounts of the climate crisis and its impacts, told by five diverse women. As one of our storytellers, Sandy, beautifully put it, stories really do have the power to foster an understanding of our shared humanity and change the narratives around the causes we care about. The stories we heard at the event certainly made us determined to keep working together for feminist climate justice. The Women's Climate Justice Collective acknowledges that we live and work on stolen Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land, and we pay our respects to elders past and present. The fight for climate justice is led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, and we'd like to pay tribute to the work of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people fighting to protect their country. if you're brave enough to be having coffee at 7.33 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. You know, you do you. I have a cup of poet, poetry. Get it? Poetry? Poetry? Anyways. <laughs> dinner. Someone's got dinner. What are you having for dinner? Deeper. Let, let us know. I'm always very... bit of a sticky peak. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Um, it is... Uh, rice with capsicum and onions all mixed together with dal on top. Oh, now I wish I didn't ask because now I'm really jealous. I want that. But what I might do is get started with the opening spiels and as people come in, they will get what they get. <laughs> all right, so good evening, everybody. Welcome to Once Upon a Planet, True Stories of Women, Gender and Climate. Firstly, we need to start off correctly. I would like to acknowledge the custodians of the land that we are all on. I'm calling in from the uh, land of the Wurundjeri people in the Kulin Nations over here in Nam in Melbourne. And I'd like to pay my respect to elders past and present and those who are emerging as well. The fight for climate justice is led by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I'd like to pay tribute to the work the eons of work that First Nations people have done to protect their country. My name is Opie. I will be your illustrious MC, host, librarian wannabe for the evening. Um, Self-intro, I'm 22. I work in social enterprise as a consultant in social impact, finishing off my bachelor degree studying civil engineering. I like to read several books at once. I have a pretty funky couch. I'm not kind of matching it, if you can tell. So this event has been organized by the Women's Climate Justice Collective, 
a national collective aiming to mainstream feminist climate justice. We're looking at raising awareness of the intersection between gender and environment. I feel like my favorite diagram ever here is super relevant. A Venn diagram, you know, look at that little crossover between gender, environment, and it crosses over. Gorgeous. We want to rise above that noise and the distraction and we want to transport ourselves through the magic of storytelling, through our amazing performers we have tonight. This is a, an opportunity to just cut through the statistics, the politics, the bureaucracy, media coverage, and just take a step back and for an hour, listen. I know I am very excited. I'm going to hear some first person accounts of climate impacts. It's going to be super beautiful. I'm really excited for us to go on this journey together to visit the heart of our shared global experiences through true spellbinding narratives from very, very diverse women that we are very honored to have with us tonight. So we've got a great program for you this evening. Please note that some of the stories may have strong themes. So feel free to step away at any stage if you need to and reach out to the event organizers if you'd like to debrief by emailing wcjcaus at gmail.com. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Keely Boone. Keely is an Aboriginal woman and she has a PhD in climate change law. She works with the Climate Justice Program, an independent not-for-profit organization that uses the law to expose environmental and human rights issues relating to climate change. Dr. Keely Boom, I am a lawyer and a climate justice activist and an academic and I'm an Aboriginal woman and a, and a mother. I've worked on climate justice for many years now. Since I graduated from university, it's been my only focus. Throughout the world, we are seeing the impacts of climate change and climate injustice where people who are Indigenous or otherwise um, disadvantaged are being impacted most severely by climate change um, and certainly future generations are those who are most at risk. For many years, myself and other lawyers have been looking for ways to bring their greater understanding of what climate justice means and courts are one way to do that, but then also advocacy more broadly and um, people stepping forward and, and telling their stories. Colonisation is incredibly deeply linked to climate change and climate justice. And that's because everyone is broadly aware of what colonisation means. But perhaps what's not as well understood is the way in which European powers conquered different parts of the world in order to gain access to what they saw as resources. And often this was fossil fuels or um, forestry. Those resources were used obviously to create greater power and wealth. And those relationships continue today. We can see throughout Australia many instances where there is this displacement of Aboriginal people in order to gain access to fossil fuels um, and also um, to have access to forestry products. That exploitation continues and in order to address climate justice we have to address land rights and Aboriginal sovereignty um, and all of the issues that go uh, with um, addressing the colonial past of Australia and other parts of the world, including Aboriginal deaths in custody and, you know, the effects of children being removed from families and people dis, um, disconnected from culture. 
In my family, we have had um, a, a lot of disruption to culture and it is, it's difficult to talk about, um, but, you know, certainly for future generations, I think it's really important we understand what has happened and do what we can to um, change the path we're in um, and bring about a different future. Through summer, myself and my community were, were very heavily impacted by the fires. Um, I'm standing here um, on the edge of my town, Maruya, where I was born and I grew up and um, I live here now. Um, and we had the fire come into our town. It also came into other towns in our area. Um, there were people who died and um, many, many animals died and, and insects and obviously the fires have created devastation to the forest, which we've never seen before. Families were separated and my, myself, I was separated from my husband for some time. He was okay, but, you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about these things. And part of the problem is that um, the impacts just keep going on and on. The fires, as everyone knows in Australia, they went on for months and everyone in my community certainly is still recovering. Just coming to this place, I went past houses where people are still living in their caravans because there's not been any rebuilding of their homes. Some people have had their houses re rebuilt. And I suppose it's, it's you know, it's, it's easy to become disheartened and at times I do feel disheartened, but I know that we have to not only take climate action and ensure that we provide a safe climate for future generations and the young people of today, but also that we address the injustices and the systemic racial discrimination and cultural discrimination that underlies so much of what modern civilization does and continues to do. We need to address corporate responsibility because although we all contribute to climate change, we know that there are just 100 fossil fuel producers who have produced 71% of industrial carbon emissions. So, you know, it is um, true that we all contribute, but in fact, that is a way of shifting blame um, from the corporate, the corporate um, actors who have that responsibility and also the governments who have allowed these corporations to do what they've done. Um, which is all obviously built upon and depends upon um, colonisation and the, um, the removal and the continued discrimination of Aboriginal rights and traditional law and sovereignty. Thank you so much, Keely, for that amazing chat. One of the points that really stood out to me was talking about colonisation and how that is a really big factor or big player in terms of climate justice. Looking at around resource extraction, that is really something that's still occurring today. I mean, it's really interesting that we say we're in a post-colonial era when a lot of the colonial legacies in Australia, in this land, you know, in my motherland as well. Something for us to think about as we jump into our next performer, our next storyteller, Mercy Make Peace. I've had the pleasure of hearing before and you all get the pleasure to hear her today. A proud member of the Pacific Climate Warrior community and part of the lab from the West, both an activist and an artist living in Melbourne. She's sharing her piece with the communities she loves to be part of. As an artist, it is known that the only way to catch a glimpse of her talent is usually on stage live with her beautiful guitar, Valerie. Over to you. Mercy, make peace. Good evening, everyone, and 
Thank you for allowing me to share on the stage. I am Mercy McPeace calling from the Wurundjeri country. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge their fight for justice is central to our work. I'll be sharing with you a song I wrote, which will be accompanied by a video presentation that captures a beautiful moment for the people and communities I work with. Last month, the Pacific Climate Warriors commemorated Matangi Malohi Week of Mobilization by campaigning and responding to a just recovery. With the heavy year we've had and continue to navigate through, we wanted to share with the world a message that is calling on leaders to demand a just recovery, to mitigate and take action on the ongoing climate emergency, the global pandemic, and the intersectionality of the many social and economic issues we're experiencing. This moment saw young people in Tonga hosting a no-car day action. We were inspired by the work in the Solomon Islands, building community gardens, and the celebration of traditional practices from Tuvalu's traditional medicine to the art exhibition in New Caledonia. And here in Nam with the Anyan Bapyam week, just to name a few. Part of this September moment was a celebration of our network, which is where I shared this piece originally. And I am so honored to share it here with you all. A celebration of our warriors here in Melbourne who have demonstrated so much hope and resilience over the years in fighting for climate justice. In response to the announcement in the NT with Origin Energy disregarding the request of traditional owners, I ask that we honor the work of the Seed Mob who are seeking our support for their Don't Frack the NT campaign. You can find them on Facebook, Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network and Instagram, Seed Mob.
and I hope you all enjoyed it. That song is called Warriors and it's dedicated to Pacific climate warriors and everything. So back to Opie. Thank you so much, Mercy. Make peace. Check her out on Instagram. You can find her there under the same name. And the Pacific climate warriors are definitely a force to be reckoned with. Okay, so our next storyteller is Kaz Ui. Kaz is a community organizer with Tipping Point and a training officer for Democracy in Colour. Previously, she was an organiser in Oxfam, Australia, and the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, with roots in the Philippines and now based in Melbourne. Kaz is passionate about people-powered change, decolonization, supporting frontline communities, and busting down the door of non-profit sector to pave the way for emerging campaigners and organisers of colour to flourish and be leaders in the social justice and climate justice movement. Over to you, Kaz. 
Hello, um, I'm Kaz. So I grew up in the Philippines. If you don't know where it is, <laughs> it's further north of Indonesia, basically. Um, and people may refer to the Philippines as a developing country. Um, but I'd like to think that we are recovering from colonization, basically, um, after more than 300 years colonized by Spain and then 50 years by the U.S. I grew up in Manila, where it's a bit cramped and, you know, surrounded by tall buildings. And it's a place um, where I didn't really feel like I belonged. It wasn't until a family trip to Isla Verde, the island where my family is originally from, where I felt truly home like I was a whole human being and diving for the first time and just seeing the burst of color underwater. No animated film like Finding Nemo or a Nat Geo documentary can match the vibrancy of sea life. Interestingly enough as well, like there are some researchers like from the World Conservation Union and the Smithsonian Institute as well um, that says that the center of the center of marine biodiversity is the Verde Island Passage Corridor, and it just has been found to have the largest concentration of marine life in the world. So it has been, Verde Island has been dubbed by scientists as the world's blue water version of the Amazon River Basin, basically. So that's just like icing um, on the cake, like for me, like it doesn't matter what scientists think of it, like it, it's home it, and it's like the best place in the world for me. However, through the years, because of climate change, coral were becoming increasingly bleached, which affected not only um, marine life, but the livelihood and food security of people in my community. Also, it's important to note that coral reefs um, act as a, as a buffer for strong storm surges from in increasingly dangerous typhoons that have been hard hitting um, the Philippines. So we banded together with um, Fisher folk, um, academia, and nonprofits as well to lobby local government to establish marine protected areas that can help recovery of the coral reefs that can be a step. We were able to do so. And I think at the age of um, 15, that was like my first taste of what an organized community can actually do. Seeing the unfairness of it, like how those who have contributed the least to climate change can be impacted the most by it and how this loss is not just a biodiversity loss or a resource loss, but a loss of culture, a way of life, you know, our heritage. This started a trajectory for me um, to be involved, not only in conservation and climate change mitigation and adaptation, but more importantly, climate justice, um, which means that we make, you know, frontline communities um, are the leaders um, and have a say in, 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 in solutions. And for me, my, my journey was, I started in this marine science end. So it was through science, was like my pathway, which I thought like science will solve climate change. But um, what I've increasingly found, like it, it, it's, with, even with the science, like it, it's difficult like to convince people, like it, it's really like people power from what I've found that has have made like impact and changes locally, at least. Being a vocal human rights and environmental rights um, activist have become increasingly difficult and dangerous in the Philippines. And last year we were actually dubbed as the deadliest country in Asia for land defenders. And it's one of the reasons why I've moved to uh, Australia too. And um, 
while land and environmental defenders like play a vital role in protecting you know climate critical forests and marine ecosystems when they take a stand against like the theft of their land or the destruction of islands like they're increasingly being red tagged in the philippines or killed this has been worsened by the recent terror law in the philippines which gives security forces sweeping powers to go after groups or individuals and they could um, put like government critics, including defenders, at risk of prosecution. So that's actually law at the moment in the Philippines. But despite this, you know, people are still rising and expressing their dissent, even if dissent is like criminalized. When we think of like climate justice, it's being with frontline environmental defenders. And it's not only like here in Australia, like we need to look outwards as well. We need to look at the Asia Pacific region, like um, our neighbors basically. And with what's happening in the Philippines at the moment, we have garnered the support of Greta and even Bill McKibben, who have strongly lobbied against like this um, anti-terror law as well. So um, just, that's just like showing um, her support. And so what I would like to ask folks now is like, if we could go to 350.org, junk terror law and stand with Filipino environmental defenders against this as well and show our solidarity with climate justice activists in the Philippines. Make sure as well that even as we advocate for a just transition to renewable energy here in Australia, that we don't offload to other countries like the Philippines and make sure that other countries also have just transition as well and we leave no one behind thank you thank you so much kaz i really resonate with that point about making sure that we move forward as a collective um particularly sometimes here in australia the geography of exactly where we are in the world gets a bit forgotten i think sometimes we forget that we are here in australasia um in this southern hemisphere so definitely Yes, the solidarity amongst Asia Pacific is very important. Thank you so much, Kaz. Our next storyteller is Flora, Flora Bawi Neimawi. Flora is a feminist and belongs to Chin Ethnicity in Myanmar. She's founded Latsi New Women Agency, a grassroots feminist program that focuses mainly on social and political movements to advance the status of marginalized women, as well as currently shouldering a member-based NGO, Community Care for Emergency Response and Rehabilitation program that mainly provides emergency humanitarian response since 2016. Flora, take it away. Hi everyone, thanks for introducing me. Thank you for bringing me up this uh, here with. Uh, actually, uh, in fact, uh, I should have uh, come up with my associate, a community member um, who doesn't have a smartphone and Facebook platform and all this. But now I saw that they are watching with uh, one computer sharing with uh, five people or three people. So yeah, it's very good that yeah, they, are, they are here. Okay, I think I have to talk about yeah who I am and then because that who I am is influencing to all the things that I'm doing and I'm working 
and also everything uh, in everyday life uh, to work, everything is based on <laughs> that um, consciousness. And that is because um, I am a feminist even before knowing that what is uh, a feminist since I was a girl, uh, seeing that uh, unequal and unjust gender division of labor between boys and girls, women and men, and others in my family, in my neighbors, my school, and my church, and my town, and all the society. And there's one example that I want to give is, uh, I was so shocking at that day to hear words from my father's side, who are somewhat quite uh, conservative, but very kind-hearted until now. But uh, regarding the gender uh, thin line, uh, the word is as if um, I, as the first girl, the first child of my parents is not happily recognized by my grandparents, wishing I was preferably born as a boy because uh, they, as members of community, perceive only men can and should take care of the responsibility of clanship and lineage. So this really deep into my heart. And also when I'm looking at the mother's side regarding the gender liberty, does it better? And then I find it, I, uh, I would say I am not sure because giving a moral authority in the name of God uh, to obey almost everything without questions. So the clash that I phase when I was a girl was I was not allowed to learn, go to a martial arts because I am a girl saying that good girls don't do such violent sport. But on the other hand, they let boys with the gun toys for fun. So that's the first event or moment that I experienced inequality and why, why like this. So then I grew up by fighting and resisting almost everything which I think which is not just and fair in family, in school, community, and until now, a society at large, and also uh, the platform that I'm working with, an NGO to fight for justice and equality. Go back to uh, the topic, uh, today topic of the climate, the woman experience of the climate, that uh, talking to the community woman, actually my community woman, because that is about, I'm going to talk about the landslide induced uh, by Cyclone Coleman in 2015 in Hakka, in Chin State. And yeah, this town is a very small town. My, I am coming from a town which is very snowy, windy, and everyone know everything, such as funeral, marriage, ceremony, divorce, assault, gossip, migration to abroad, and nearly everything we know each other. But now things are changing, and it is not like that. So it's very difficult to know who, who do what and what happened to whom. So one day um, I came back to Myanmar after pursuing my father's study in abroad. Uh, I encountered with a massive landslide induced by Cyclone Coleman, well, bad destruct uh, gardens, row schools, charges that result around uh, 5,000 population that currently uh, around 5,000 population are resettled. Uh, well, actually it was involuntary resettlement after 10 months in the poorly regulated managed uh, camps into the, the new resettlement place. And that is the community, the woman community I'm working with until now. I will talk about uh, how we think that yeah, our engagement and encounter with this climate uh, problem 
I quickly want to uh, echo from my associate who could not present now, said, uh, saying that most uh, residents in Hakka were farmers totally depending on farming and gardening for living and children and paying all the medical bills. 10 years ago, it is insufficient. It is sufficient for one family to survive what was farmed in their backyards. But now the quality of our soil is degrading and less productive and we cannot really uh, own these uh, agricultural practices. She has found out that a wide range of unusual insects, uh, worms and insects in a farming. And when it's rain from the sky, some leaves are yeah, immediately or vividly changing their colors as if they dead. So we cannot really plant all these crops and plants when disaster happen and landslide occur and then women are very much disproportionately facing the problem, the consequences. And the solution that we think is to quickly jump um, is we believe that uh, the feminist uh, fossil fuel free future is the only safeguard that we are hoping, the human uh, civilization that no more uh, rights violation and inhumane act that because it destroyed our livelihood and our survival and our future. Thank you. Flora, thank you so much for sharing with us. Also, hello to Flora's colleagues who are also watching this call. So good to have you join us. Thanks. Our final storyteller for tonight is Sandy McDonald, founder of sandymcdonald.com and charity Create Care Global. Sandy works with social impact business founders to bring clarity of communication through purpose-led stories through her program, Changing Stories. After 22 years running a marketing communications company, she used purposeful storytelling to start a worldwide community that helps thousands of orphan children. Sandy believes stories told coherently from clarity of purpose and principles act as a conduit to curiosity and truth seeking, feeling the energy to enrich, transform and save lives. Over to you, Sandy. Thank you. The start of 2020 and the fires are raging. We have no idea what will shortly confront us because our gazes are fixed on a dark orange conflagration ravaging the land and leaving in its wake a sense of terrible doom. One day, a climate change activist friend asked me if story had a role to play to persuade people to act for climate change. It needed a deeper consideration than just a glib answer about story as a communication panacea. Now I think visually, so I drew this model to identify an audience that might be persuaded to change behavior as a result of story. I called it the climate change spectrum. On the one side, flat earthers, on the other, eco-terrorists, and every belief system in between. I thought the people bordered by the climate apathetic, worried but not enough to change behavior, the armchair dweller, prepared to pontificate but not to act, and the would-be activists, desperate to make a change but not quite sure how, would surely number in their millions in Australia, let alone the world. I thought, there's work for story to be done here. Now, as if the nightmare of the fires weren't enough, 2020 went on to throw a proliferation of horror stories at us. COVID-19 and its allies, 
death and sadness, bewilderment, uncertainty and isolation, whizzed into a frenzy by the inflammatory, the divisive and conspiracies, and it came with a mounting sense of hopelessness. But research shows that hopelessness is cognitively associated with an action. If you've ever experienced despair, you'll know you can't muster the energy to think straight, let alone act decisively. We just cannot manufacture creativity, innovation and action out of fear and anxiety. So how could story be the catalyst to change this dynamic? How could telling stories shift us collectively from despair to hope, deflation to inspiration, and apathy to action? A while back, I was asked to do a series of keynotes on storytelling for a national conference. Until I started researching, I'd wake at 3am, brain spinning with half-baked ideas, but the mirage-like fragments never worth remembering in the morning. Once started, the digging revealed a rich vein of documents that referenced the benefits of storytelling, in particular to teach school students. The same sentiments were mirrored in each. Storytelling is our oldest and most effective form of education because it lifts learning by blending understanding, emotion and creativity. Now, if it's accepted wisdom, that stories work so well to educate our young folk, isn't it then a proven methodology for anyone, especially about acting on climate change, which must be explained in all its layered complexity? My mother turned 90 on Monday. She smoked until she was 60, rocks a party, and is addicted to ice cream and caramel sauce. So I had to laugh when talking to an accountant about the importance of stories and numbers when he used the ice cream industry as an example. He explained that to cater for everything that impacts on ice cream sales, trends must be forecast and the numbers analysed to help management make the best decisions and that the potential for things to go awry when communicating this complexity through a chain of listeners is huge. So what could help make better sense of it all? Not just about the ice cream, but everything that influences its manufacture and sale, COVID-19, water policy, increased diabetes, climate change. The answer had to be story. It's story that can tell the whole picture in its fullness while unpacking the complexity frame by frame to make sense of the whole. Each story, teaching, explaining and sticking, a bit like my mum's caramel sauce. And yet story remains stubbornly absent in most communication. Everywhere, lists of empirical information, begging for the creativity of storytelling to forge a deeper understanding, to build trust and a willingness to act. Lists are dull. We dismiss them and we forget the facts but we invest in story. During a storytelling training day, a young researcher told us about his study of bamboo over the last 18 months. While he'd acquired a forensic knowledge of the attributes of bamboo, 
the purpose for his research remained a mystery. So I asked him why it mattered several times. Finally, he told a story which revealed his distress at the millions of tons of toxic plastic waste in landfill from vehicle interiors. He said if he could prove that bamboo was shatterproof, it would have astonishing potential to replace this plastic. It was this story of the quest to rid the world of unnecessary plastic waste that captivated his audience later, way beyond his earlier explanation of his bamboo research. Without the story, investment and action toward his innovation becoming a reality would be in scant supply. Now this isn't just an ambit claim about the power of story to motivate action. I believe that when we tell stories from clarity of purpose, they act as a conduit to curiosity and truth-seeking, fueling the energy to transform and save lives and the planet. And I have personal validation of this belief. Twelve years ago, stricken by the tragedy of more than 25 million orphaned and vulnerable children in southern Africa, I started a worldwide community through purpose-driven storytelling. I asked them to warm the children by knitting and sending squares to my aunt in South Africa. Today, this community of over 20,000 from 71 countries is self-sustaining, and my aunt and her volunteers have received more than 2 million squares and made blankets to wrap about 100,000 children. This is my personal testimony to the power of story to inspire and motivate, but spearheaded by Paul Zak, the founder for the Center of Neuroeconomic Studies in the US, there is a remarkable body of decades-long research which demonstrates exactly why stories have this impact. It shows that telling and listening to character-driven and emotionally charged story activates neurochemicals in our brains cortisol to focus our attention, which is in scarce supply these days, and oxytocin, which fosters empathy, trust, and a willingness to cooperate. And that is exactly what was at work in a recent experiment with elderly residents from a community in Illawarra, New South Wales, who were either ignorant or hopeless about climate change. So they were shown a series of short story videos that related to saving energy. In one, an elderly couple makes tea while chatting about how they use energy. Endearingly, they fret about whether they're wasting energy, opening and shutting the fridge door. Should we leave it open, dear, or shut it, do you think, while we take out the milk? In wonder, they tell the story of neighbours who bought a new energy-rated fridge and the money that it saved them. The researchers tested their neurological reaction to the stories, which had a remarkable effect. It resulted in a willingness to save energy, reducing their usage in up to 22.5% per household. The researchers drew the conclusion that the stories had rewired their brains and changed their once negative climate change narrative. But you know we know this to be the truth, because we've all been exposed to a story that changed how we feel. So much of our human activity is based on a series of stories. 
Isn't it after all the collective power of stories that persuades us to vote and pray one way or another that has everyone chanting in unison in the stands, united in their love for their sport and their team? This is what creates the allegiance to place and space. Because we humans crave oxytocin and the feeling of belonging it gives us. In 1969, I did my last year of school in a landlocked African country called Malawi, as my father was the chief pilot of the national airline. Huddled over a small portable radio, I recall in detail the day we listened to the unfolding story of the most radical innovation of our time. We held our universal breath as the eagle landed and heard in real time the voice of Neil Armstrong taking his first step on the moon. In that moment, we were elated. We felt bound together, united as one across the globe in celebrating one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. This is what we need to conjure up with our stories, an indomitable belief that we can mitigate climate change together. Every story told of our ingenuity, our achievements, plans and our focus contributes to a collective storytelling which can build our belief that we belong to and are united in our commitment to act and all the while helping shift those on the climate change spectrum from despair to hope, deflation to inspiration and apathy to positive action for climate change. Sandy, thank you so, so, so much for bringing us to, I feel like you really brought us to the human of this evening, to right to the, right to the essence of it. Made me think of um, a story my dad was telling me a few days ago about when he was in South Africa and he managed to anger one of his best friends. So thank you for that, Sandy. We have heard some truly incredible, amazing, cup-filling, cup-overflowing, stories tonight of climate impact, of resilience, of resistance, of strength. And I really also want to say of community and uplifting, uplifting each other. You know, I think there is real strength and real power in the power of people, in the collective, in community. We are the ones who go to our fellow human and we and we put a hand out and say, let me help you. I think that really is a lot of what I heard tonight. I'm so glad that we got to share this together. Um, the fight is far from over. As I was saying, a collective, um, we need to collectively move forward to help to mainstream feminist climate justice. All right, that is it. Thank you so, 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 so much to our storytellers, organizers, and everyone who has joined us tonight. Once again, I'd like to acknowledge the unceded First Nations land we are all coming in from. And I would like everybody to take care, look after yourselves, drink some water, wash your hands. Okay, bye everyone. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a podcast network dedicated to lifting the voices of the climate community. You can find out more about the people behind Climactic and all the shows we produce at climactic.fm. We are a social enterprise podcast network and we greatly appreciate your support. You can find a link to our Pausable where you can support us directly in the show notes of this episode or from our website. Thank you for listening, and from the whole Climactic Collective, 
keep up the great work and take care of each other in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective. Collective.